If I had to sum up the Christian faith, uh, the Christian life, in one word, I think that I would use the word transformation. Transformation. Boiling something as complex as Christianity down into one word, I think, is, of course, going to lead to some oversimplification. Um, but I'm willing to kind of stand by this idea, transformation. I really think that's what it's about. If I had to sum it up, the whole goal of pursuing Jesus, transformation, life change, that, that's what it's all about. And, and obviously from that starting point of transformation and life change, I could add some deep theological layers, um, some wonderfully deep theological layers, and kind of get into all the beautiful complexities of Christianity. But I think that that word transformation is a wonderful starting point in explaining what Christianity is all about. Um, so before I, I really kind of start cruising on 1 John chapter 3, which is where we're going to be looking this morning, um, let me ask you a question just for personal reflection. What kind of spiritual transformation have you gone through in the last year? What kind of spiritual transformation have you personally experienced in the last 12 months? Have you grown spiritually? Last week, if you were here, I was calling us to be Christians in substance, not just in name, to not just call ourselves Christians, but to live, to behave like Christ actually lived and behaved. And then I realized this morning, uh, I'm sorry, this week, that, that being Christians in substance is a process of transformation. It's a process of change. You don't just wake up one day and you are a fully committed Christian. It's this process of change. So what does that look like? How does that work? And I want us to read uh, John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Did something like fall behind me? A bird. Oh, a bird hit the window. Nice. <laughs> Transformation, right? I don't. <laughs> um, let me throw First uh, John chapter three verses twenty-three through twenty-four up there on the screen. It's just one of those days, right? Um, later, there will be a dog swimming in the pond or something like that. It's happened. It's happened. Okay, so First John chapter three verses twenty-three through twenty-four, and then I'm going to pray for us. And this is His commandment: that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let me pray for us. God, we just come before you asking that you would move in our hearts this morning. Um, we pray that you would make your word alive, that, that it would lead to transformation as we come together and we worship you, as we study your word, as we sing these songs of praise, as we take communion later, Lord. I pray that all these elements would work together towards transformation, that you would change our hearts, that we would be more like you, and that we would engage in that process wholeheartedly. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, notice with me that, if you'll just keep that up there for me, Ron. Notice with me that in, in these two verses, we have this word command or commandment in some form three times in two verses. And in the first and second use of the word, John engages in kind of this oversimplification, just like my oversimplification, about the Christian life kind of being primarily about transformation. He, he does a, a similar uh, oversimplification. He tells us that God's commandment, the commands for the Christian, are to believe in his son and love one another. I mean, that's a pretty gross simplification, isn't it? Oversimplification. It sounds almost too simple. 
But then I remember that Jesus himself passed this oversimplification on to his disciples, which is where I'm assuming John picked it up, right? And, and the oversimplification, believe in his son Jesus and love one another. In Matthew 22, and there's another reference in another one of the Gospels, but in Matthew 22, we find Jesus in this scenario, and maybe you're familiar with it, where he's just being drilled by the Pharisees. They're asking him all these questions, the religious leaders and the Sadducees as well. And, and for the sake of time, let me just paraphrase what happens rather than turning there. But one of the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders stepped forward and asked Jesus this question. He says, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Of all of the law, what would you say is the greatest commandment? Now, the Jewish law was made up of 613 different commandments that are all found in some form in the Old Testament. So this religious leader, his goal was really to make Jesus look like a fool by asking this question. He was hoping that Jesus would pick one of the 13, and then he would be able to say, but you neglect all of the others. Did I say 13? 613, sorry. Um, and, and so he was, he was hoping to make Jesus look like a fool by, by having Jesus single out one that would be the most important, and then he would be able to say, well, Jesus, you've neglected all of the others. And so how can you call yourself truly committed to Jesus? How can you say that you live a life of worship to God? Your view of him is too simplistic. You've picked just one law of 613. But as we know, Jesus was God and he wrote the law. So this plan ends up being the ultimate backfire. Uh, Jesus responds and he tells the man, the entire law and all of the prophets can be summed up in one idea, one simplistic guideline for your life. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and all of your mind. And Jesus says, that's the greatest commandment. And then he gives the guy a bonus, because the guy didn't ask what the second was. Jesus just throws it in there as a bonus. He says, and you know what? The second greatest commandment is very much like the first one. And it's love others like you would love your own self. Now, I love this response because it's super easy to remember. This has been kind of a theme of my preaching since I started doing it many years ago. Um, love God and love others. Jesus says, if I could sum it all up for you, I would just say, love God and love others. And it is indeed pretty simple, right? That's, that's easy to remember. Jesus says, essentially, if you want to be my follower then you have to love God with every fiber of your being and show love to other people like you would show love to yourself. And I think his answer must have just blown his audience away. Um, at least in Matthew 22, there's like no response from the other guy. He's just no response. He has nothing to say. He must have just walked away in shock and awe that Jesus would come up with something so simple yet so profound that he could sum it all up in just those simple words. So John then, when he reminds us of these commandments that God gave us, he's echoing Jesus. You can see it right there. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Uh, John says, again, God's commandment is for us to believe in his son, to respond to that belief in love for God and love for others. And if you read, if you've ever read the book of 1 John, all like five pages of it, because it's pretty short, you could do it this afternoon, probably in the commercial breaks. 
as you're watching TV. But you see very quickly that the whole theme of his book is this idea, love God, love other people, have your life be characterized by love. And John's trying to remind us of the greatest commandments in the Christian faith. So my summary then of the Christian life, transformation. I think it really enters into our text here this morning as we look at verse 24, which is the second part that I have up there. Let me read it for us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. I, I really think that there are two kinds of transformation in the Christian life. Okay? Maybe you're not a note taker, but if you are, this is a great place to start. Because I've, I've got some pointers here that I think uh, would be good for you to tape up somewhere in your house. Okay? The first kind, like I said, two kinds of transformation. The first kind, I believe, is active transformation. Active transformation. It's change that takes place because of your efforts. You're not going to change without some effort in your life. Um, this is one of the things that, that makes me think that evolution is just crazy. Because essentially they say if you leave something long enough, eventually it will become something else. And I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time sitting on my couch watching TV and it hasn't changed me. I'm still the man that I was when I first sat down on the couch. So active transformation, change that takes place because of your efforts. And then I think there's a second kind of transformation that takes place in the Christian life. And it's passive transformation. Change that takes place because of what God works and wills in you. It's not something that you can do yourself. It's not something that you make happen by your own effort. And John says that we have to keep God's commandments to live or abide in him. That would be active transformation. We have to love God and love others as an action. It doesn't just happen. We have to be committed to it and put effort into it. A commandment is something that you do. It's an action, an activity. If I could paraphrase verse 24, that second part for us, I'd state it something like this. In order to remain in God, we have to actively do what Jesus would do. We have to actively do what he would do. Be transformed through our actions into his likeness. Now, when it comes to active transformation, I think there are a couple questions that we can kind of give ourselves, we can ask ourselves to sort of evaluate and assess how we're doing in the areas that we might need some work. So I want to throw these at you guys, and, and I'd love for you to maybe, I'm, I'm going to throw a couple questions out there throughout the rest of my message. I'd love for you to maybe pick one that you kind of think, this week I'd love to ask myself that question. The, the first set of questions then deals with active transformation and kind of helps us evaluate how we're doing at keeping God's commandment to first and foremost love him. And I'm going to base it right off the Ten Commandments. Um, most of you, or most people are at least sort of familiar, even if they can't list the Ten Commandments. But the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The first question out of that then is, do I love anything more than I love God? Ask yourself that question. Pause and consider it for a second. Your vocation, your family, your children, your money, your stuff, your image, your Facebook page, your blog, your appearance, whatever it may be. Is there anything in your life that you have to confess you love more than God? And the second commandment is that God's people shouldn't make idols or serve or worship them. 
Don't commit idolatry. So the second question then is, is there anything that I serve or worship more than I serve or worship God? And if there's a yes answer to either of these questions, then I think you need to engage in some active transformation in your life. You need to be seeking some change in who you are. The truth is, and I've harped on this, if you've been coming to Maricopa Springs for a while, you've heard me say this over and over and over again. Nothing in this life is going to satisfy you like Jesus. Nothing. That constant longing that you have, even after you've obtained the object that you thought you were longing for, is a longing for Jesus, and it's only ever going to be satisfied by him. Nothing in this life as well is worthy of your worship like Jesus is worthy of your worship. So what is it about your idol or your God that causes you to lose sight of your love and affection and adoration for the one true God? What about that idol is even attractive to you that would cause you to give up God for that thing? And when I really ask myself that question, and I've, I've sort of hinted at it this morning, I'm struck by the absurdity of my idol worship. I really am. Let me try and parse it out for you. Uh, I think one thing that I struggle uh, with worshiping from time to time is my TV. It sounds silly because it is. It is silly. I saw an article this week, though, about how much time Americans spend watching TV, and it is absurd. Uh, but think about it for a second. I'm, I'm going to glorify humanity here for a second, but it'll make sense. When do I, in all of my, or why do I, in all of my glory and my splendor? Because the, the fact of the matter is, I'm an amazing human being. And I'm not saying Grady is. Humans in general are incredible creations. What the mind is capable of, what our bodies are capable of, the things that we can accomplish and do. I have so much potential and power and intelligence. Why do I, in all of my glory, subject myself to the tyranny of a God as stupid and foolish and powerless as my TV? I mean, what is worship? It is sitting in adoration of something. And I sit there and I watch TV, sometimes for hours in a week. And the whole situation gets even more absurd when I bring God into the picture. Because why is a creature as glorious as me worshiping a God as ridiculous as Jesus, or I'm sorry, a God as ridiculous as the TV, <laughs> forgive me, when I could be worshiping Jesus? Do you see that? I'm substituting Christ in his magnificence, in his glory in his graciousness, in his splendor, for my TV. It's insignificant and puny. Or, or your vocation. Maybe it's your music, your money, again, your stuff, whatever it is, your image. Why would you substitute God for that and worship it? So is there anything that you worship more than you worship God? That's the first question for evaluation. An active transformation means stepping into obedience to God and loving him first and foremost. And I think maybe it starts with the time of confession. Maybe that's where you need to begin. Coming before God and confessing that on the altar of your life, where God should be, where Christ should be, you've placed something else. And just letting him know that you're sorry for that. And accepting his forgiveness for your idolatry. And if you don't feel a little bit sheepish and embarrassed over the whole situation, you're probably honestly not going deep enough. 
If you don't feel a little bit, you don't need to feel shame because there's grace. But if you don't feel a little bit silly when you come before God and you say, God, forgive me for worshiping my TV in place of you, then you're probably not being honest with yourself and going deep enough. It's a silly, silly thing to do. Whatever it is, whether it's your TV or something else. It, I, the, the example that I had was like coming to my wife and telling her, you sent me to the grocery store with our grocery budget, but I bought baseball cards instead. You know, I, I've, I've substituted that, and, and now I feel silly telling you that. Another just stupid human behavior. So start, I think, by honestly confessing that to God. And then I think from there, you move to asking God to steal your heart. Ask him to compel you to worship him. Ask him to give you the grace to fall deeply in love with him, that he would strengthen you to actively pursue him as your one and only worthy God. So you start with confession, you move to aggressive action, and you do whatever it takes to dethrone that idol. I'm going to throw some of these out here. It's things like prayer, finding someone to hold you accountable, scripture reading or memorization, habits that build your character, or take your eyes off of that idol and refocus them on Christ. Active transformation, I think it includes the exercise of your will, the help of community around you, the removal of temptation, and the implementation of habits that are going to lead to change. And if you don't do those things as part of this process, you're going to find yourself worshiping a worthless God again instead of Christ. And... and let me assure you again that you're never going to change in the depth of your love for God if he's not the God that you're actually worshiping. If you want to know why you're not growing in love for God, maybe it's because you're worshiping another God. And if you worship something else more than you worship him, you're never going to grow in that relationship. You're always going to be a shallow, TV, or a shallow Christian if your TV is your God and Jesus is second best. I just can't spit it out in the right order this morning. The second set of evaluative questions that I want to pose to you guys this morning has to do with the command to love others. And I've got two questions for you to ask yourself in this area as well uh, when it comes to active transformation. Okay? The first one is, am I the most important person in my life and is it all about me? Uh, if you're married like me, sometimes you have to ask yourself that question. I had just a moment where uh, my wife was busy with something, and so I had taken the kids out. We went out, and we had dinner. And then I came back home, and Leanne was like, you didn't bring me any dinner? And I was, I was like, no, I, I didn't even think about bringing you dinner. You never asked me. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, I am so self-centered. And it shows up most frequently in those little things, doesn't it? Do you treat your spouse like their only purpose in your relationship is to serve you? Do you live like the world is a scene from the movie The Truman Show where you think everybody is watching you live out your life because it's the most exciting thing that they could do and everyone else should be absorbed with you? Is that how you live your life? When was the last time, let me ask you this question, and this isn't one of my evaluative questions, but let me ask you this. When was the last time you went out of your way, you actually inconvenienced yourself to serve somebody else? You didn't do it because it was easy. You actually did it because it was difficult. It would have been an inconvenience for me to bring home a bag of fast food for my wife. It would have. 
but it would have been a very selfless thing to do. And if you're living like the world exists as your playground and we're all here to kind of coddle and serve you, first of all, you're living in a fantasy. And then I think second of all, you have some active transformation you need to engage in to grow in your love for other people. Pick up the serving towel, get dirty. Uh, you know, if I can be real honest, take a month and, and serve in our children's ministry. I'm serious. I think you would benefit more from that, even though you're not in this room listening to me preach and be a part of the teaching or the worship. You would benefit more from that because you're engaging in service of other people. You are loving like Christ commanded us to love. And second, my second evaluation question, are there any broken relationships that I'm responsible to reconcile? Are there any relationships in your life that are dysfunctional where you're the primary party responsible for that dysfunction? Do you have a relative, a brother, a sister, a parent, maybe it's a friend, where that relationship has soured and you're a part of the problem, but you've never taken the time to deal with it or address it. You can't fix other people, okay? So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you go and you subject yourself to abuse. If, if you have dealt with it and they don't, then it's their problem. But if you're the cause of that relational, relational dysfunction and you're not actively seeking to fix it, then honestly, you're, living, you're not living in obedience to God's command to love other people. You gotta get out there and you gotta fix it so you can continue to grow. You at least gotta put it back on the table for them to reconsider dealing with that dysfunction in the relationship with you. If they refuse, that's all you can do. But do you have any relationships that are broken and it's your responsibility to fix them? Now, the second part of, of transformation is passive transformation. And I want to spend a couple minutes here before I close. John says in verse 24, And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And it's ultimately the spirit that's going to make that passive transformation in our lives. He opens chapter 3 with the verse that I put up on the screen during our soak time. And the verse just says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Passive transformation is simply allowing God to change you. And I think it happens in a couple ways. So let me spell these out for us. First of all, prayer. Spending time talking to God. Something like that soak time where you're just engaging with God's spirit. I'm not talking about prayer requests. I think a lot of times we boil prayer down to coming before God and saying, you know, God provide for my family. You know, I pray that my kids would grow up to love you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are great things. Pray those. But that's not the kind of prayer I'm talking about. I'm talking about just simply being in God's presence, allowing him to whisper to you that you are his beloved child, allowing the Holy Spirit that he's given you to be present as you kind of focus your heart and consciously turn your attention to him. And I call this kind of prayer, I stole it from Brother Lawrence, practicing the presence of God. Practicing the presence of God. John says that this kind of activity, an awareness of God's Holy Spirit present in our life, it reminds us that we are his children. 
And, and it never ceases to amaze me how my children, they just want to sit in my lap. My daughter, Karis, is just such a beautiful example of this. She, she would sit in my lap for hours if I let her. She doesn't need any toys. The TV doesn't have to be on. She's just at that age where she just wants to sit in my lap. And, and she probably really would do it for hours if I let her. She just likes to sit in my lap and be near me. And I love it. It's beautiful. And I think passive transformation, the transformation that God does in us, takes place when we just sit in his presence, when we're just near him. When we consciously remember that our identity is as a beloved child, like John says in the first verse of chapter 3. Okay, now the second way that passive transformation takes place is through worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. The whole reason that we sing songs at Maricopa Springs is to worship God for who he is and what he's done. I grew up going to church, but I've always imagined that if I hadn't and I just walked into this room where a bunch of people were standing singing songs, that it'd be weird. Like, imagine going into a group of people and they're all singing like Lady Gaga songs. Like, wouldn't that be super weird? But, but, but for, for those of us who are believers, who understand who God is, the whole reason that we sing songs is to praise him for who he is and what he's done. It's not to impress the person next to us with how great our voice is or feel uncomfortable because our voice isn't great. The lyrics and the music that we engage in are powerful. They're filled with reminders of how mighty and gracious our God is, of how beautiful and righteous he is. That's why we sing songs of worship. We sing to give him praise for the cross, for what he's accomplished. We sing to honor him for his goodness, his mercy, his compassion, and his justice, for his nearness in our lives. One final way, and this is going to be my closing thought this morning, that we worship God for who he is and what he's done, that we engage in passive transformation is through communion. We're going to do that this morning together in a minute. All of these things, you know, they all lead to to passive transformation. That happens when God is at work in our hearts. And, And communion is this powerful moment of passive transformation for believers. It's just bread and wine or grape juice, but it has power. It's this moment where we come before God and we remember that even with all of our best efforts at active transformation, even with all of our hard work, we will never approach God in his infinite holiness. We cannot come near his throne of grace unless he draws us and he does that work in us. We remember that Christ, in order to save any of those of us who would throw ourselves on his mercy, he took some bread as this image of his body and he told his disciples that his body would be sacrificed like the bread was broken in order that we could be called his children. That's what the bread stands for. And then he took this cup filled with wine and he said that it stood for his blood, which was going to be spilled on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins as a new covenant between God and man, a covenant of grace, a covenant of his love and his promise that no matter what happens, No matter how far we go from him or how long we turn our backs to him, 
There's no place where we can go to be apart from his love. And there is always redemption if we give our hearts back to him. There's no place he wouldn't go or reach to rescue us and bring us back. And passive transformation happens, I think, when we let the reality of God flow into our lives and change us. As we remember who he is and what he's done. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that we would be a people who love you and a people who love and serve others. I pray that that would define us. And that as we seek to love you more and love others more, that we would go through this process of transformation. What I believe is just the core fundamental idea of Christianity. Being transformed evermore into the likeness of Jesus. And God, as we approach the communion table this morning, I pray that we would be filled with this understanding of who you are and what it is that you've done for us. I, I pray that the reality of who you are as God would flow into our lives and that you would transform us. And we ask that in your name. Amen.